Hey, big biology listeners. First, a significant announcement. Our longtime producer, Matt Blois, has now officially left the podcast for another job. Matt, we're really going to miss you. You were there from the very first episode, helping produce more than 55 shows over three seasons. Thank you so much. We couldn't have gotten here without you. And we're super excited to welcome our new producer, Ruth Demery. Ruth started as an intern with the podcast last year and has taken over the lead producer role in the past few weeks. We're thrilled with the work she's doing and look forward to seeing the podcast continue to evolve. Okay, on to the intro of today's show. The rise of flowering plants and the diversification of insects is a prime example of what evolutionary biologists call coevolution. Over the past 200 million years or so, plants evolved flowers to advertise themselves in different ways and to attract insect vectors for their pollen while insects evolved better modes of finding and exploiting flowers. Each group exerted selection on the other, and the back and forth is part of what led to the millions of species of insects and flowering plants that we see today. Our guest on this episode is Rob Raguso, a professor at Cornell who studies coevolution between insects and plants. In a recent paper, Rob explained that besides driving biological diversification, coevolution also provides a dazzling array of ecosystem services to we humans. One obvious ecosystem service is pollination of food crops. About a third of our crops depend on pollination from insects. And as we discussed in a recent episode with Dave Goulson, most of these insect pollinators are from local wild populations. Without them, not nearly as many fruits and vegetables. Coevolution has also massively impacted the course of our history. For example, frankincense and myrrh are derived from resins produced to defend against insect herbivores. These resins were historically precious and were used across cultures to alleviate pain, and heal wounds. On this episode, we talk with Rob about all sorts of things coevolution, including the geographic mosaic theory and two glories of Mesoamerica, tequila and mezcal. I'm Marty Martin. And I'm Art Woods. And this is Big Biology. Rob, thank you so much for uh, joining us on the show today. We really appreciate it. We've got a lot of ground to cover, um, but let's start with, let's hope it's a softball. Um, it's a big open-ended sort of concept, but um, there's really no way to answer it incorrectly. What's coevolution, and how is it different from, if there is such a thing, regular old evolution? Well, that's <laughs> that's a great topic for a miniseries. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we'll just change the podcast to coevolution. <laughs> yeah, and from people better than me. Um, but I, I, I'll say one of the interesting aspects of, of the answer to your question is what isn't coevolution? I would say that there's a lot of, you know, Mark Rauscher, Dan Jansen, lots of like real pioneers in our field, you know, uh, James Thompson, you know, have had formative contributions to the idea of like, when is it coevolution? When is it not? Uh, you know, it, it starts with Ehrlich and Raven in 1964, the year before I was born, who came up, who had this brilliant insight that writ large, looking at biotas, you know, that there were these really non-random special relationships between lineages of plants and lineages of insects that eat those plants, okay? Uh, and, and each of them, young scientists at the time, but encyclopedic biologists, you know, the broad knowledge of butterflies that eat plants, you know, different plant families that have different kind of secondary chemistry that makes them, you know, well known to us. Um, you know, so, so their 
image of coevolution was this idea that um, organisms can enter into relationships where the mutual selective pressures upon each other are intense. So an, an herbivore eating a plant could kill that plant. It, it, could, it could eat the flowers and fruits. It could defoliate it. Uh, so so it, it, other, in other words, directly affecting its fitness, its survivorship, and its fecundity. Um, you, conversely, um, if that plant is a host plant, you know, the, and if it fights back and kills um, the progeny of a butterfly laying eggs on, say, a passion flower plant, um, that's, that's going to, you know, that's a direct hit to your fitness, right? If your eggs hatch into larvae that cannot handle those leaves, you know, you're not going to leave more descendants, you know, very sort of base Dar Darwinism 101. You know, so, so, so strict coevolution um, is the idea that you have reciprocal selective pressures that lead to, you know, diversification. Okay, so it lead to a whole lineage of plants that have alkaloids or have cyanogens or have saponins or have you know, different kinds of defense chemistry, for example. Um, and then you have lineages of animals that interact with them that have counter adaptations to deal with or detoxify or sequester uh, those attempts to, you know, kind of disrupt the relationship. Uh, now, coevolution isn't always antagonistic, right? Coevolution isn't always about um, plants versus herbivores or uh, animals, you know, prey versus their predators. Coevolution doesn't, doesn't have to be plant-insect, right? Um, it could be between uh, flowering plants and their pollinators or plants, you know, that produce fruits and their, and their dispersal agents. Right, some kind of reciprocal cooperativity. Uh... That, that's right. So, so I would say that the early take-home message of the idea of coevolution was the you know these textbook examples of highly co-adapted organisms whose phenotypes, whose morphologies, you know, whose traits reflect the, the, that co-adaptation. And one of the outcomes, especially when there's an antagonistic relationship, is the idea of an arms race. Um, so so think about it, right? It's the mid '60s, early '70s. What <laughs> what's going on in the <laughs> What's going on Prominent in the world? in the mind, yeah. yes. <laughs> right? It's nuclear, you know, nuclear escalation and arms races and things. So I, I, I try to be very humble uh, about science being a kind of, um, you know, search for truth that isn't impacted by, you know, the social constructs around us. Uh, and there's volumes and volumes of books written about how politics and, 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 and social theory uh, and, and philosophy of, uh, and culture affects the way scientists ask questions uh, and paradigms. You know, in ecology, for example, the importance of competition versus cooperation. Uh, so just, just to keep this brief, like that, that's, that was sort of the beginning paradigm of coevolution. And um, for 20 or 30 years, there was a very sort of active field of people asking, well, when is it coevolution? What's diffuse coevolution rather than tit for tat, you know, highly specific coevolution. When is it not coevolution? Can't we just say things are, you know, adapted to each other? And is it useful as a heuristic, you know, to, 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 to just put up those barriers? Right. Now, is it is it something special about coevolution? What was what was Ehrlich and Ravens or, you know, subsequent research, their motivation for naming it relative to, say, evolution by natural selection? The conspicuous thing is if an organism lineage is responding to some part of the environment, that doesn't have the propensity for, you know, reciprocal evolution, 
weather, whatever it might be, can be a strong selective event, but the weather is not going to change depending on, you know, how long the bird's wings are, uh, are getting. But is it just that observation that motivated it, or is it something about the outcome, sort of the rate at which evolution happens, or the propensity for, like you said, diversification to happen? Was it that that sort of sets it apart and motivated Ehrlich and Raven to distinguish it from evolution by natural selection? Very, yeah, that's, that's very good. That, that's the key. That, that One of the key ideas coming out of that early paper was the idea of escape and radiation. You know, so the idea is that if, you, if, you, if this arms race of, 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 of mutual selective pressures leads you to a key innovation, you know, a, a, a compound like tetrodotoxin, okay, this, this, this amazing blocker of ion channels, right, that's the, that, that, you know, fugu fish have and you know, that, that is a mover and shaker across the planet. Um, you know, the Brody's work on newts and, and, and um, garter snakes, for example, is all about how can you handle tetrodotoxin? What does it do? Is it, it's, a, it's a game changer for nervous systems, right? Um, so if, you, if the coevolutionary arms race leads you to a key innovation, a new kind of toxin that only specialists can detoxify, then you're in a new adaptive zone. You know, then you're free to enter new niches. It's like you know, cichlid fish in Lake Malawi. Like once, once the ancestral cichlid got there, all the all the niches were open, right? And so it's the diversification rates. So if you go into the broader evolutionary literature and look at key innovations, you know, Scott Hodges did some beautiful work on nectar spurs and like our our lineages of plants that that evolved nectar spurs are they more species rich than than their sister? you know, lineages that don't have them, the answer is a resounding yes. And you could think of things like wings and eyes, uh, you know, glands that, that, that you know, reduce, remove salt from water, you know, all kinds of, of key innovations that organisms have um, that then lead to lineages that explode in terms of the diversification rates. So Ehrlich and Raven provided a mechanism, a potential mechanism for there, you know, why are there almost 500 species of passion flower vines? You know, it's because they're cyanid, probably because they're cyanogenic, and that gives them a leg up on most generalized you know, herbivores, and they've just got to contend with the specialized beetles and long-winged butterflies, et cetera, that can handle them. Yeah, yeah. I want to ask a question about Ehrlich and Raven's paper. I mean, it's become such a landmark in, in thinking about coevolution, and um, so it sounds like these ideas were in the air already, uh, in, in many different respects. So what was it about that paper, do you think, that just crystallized the idea for so many people? I, I think the explanatory power, um, you know, something that Ehrlich and Raven individually were very, very good at across their long careers was gathering huge amounts of diffuse data that were the province of individual specialists and, 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 and synthesizing them and saying, you know, look at the, I mean, I, I can't even do justice to those gentlemen's careers, right? But, you know, Peter Raven also had a real interest in biogeography. You know, he's somebody who, you know, Axelrod and Raven looked at, looked at, you know, the, the continental patterns of, of, of floras and said, like, how did they, you know, how did, how, why are plants shared between China and, you know, the Smoky Mountains, you know, Eastern North America? You know, what, what how about the Madrean flora that we know and love from the American Southwest? Um, but that, but that is a is a shadow of the deeper richness of the Sierra Madre, you know, biota in Mexico. The thing that amazes me about the Ehrlich and Raven paper is, you know, it's got these kind of big long taxonomic lists, and 
uh, of stuff that they use to bolster their case. And, and it, it feels like they've just found all these tiny little puzzle pieces and they put them all together into this giant holistic view that is just so rare in, in papers. It helped. I have to say it helped me as, as, as an undergraduate. I was working with Charles Remington at Yale and I was a butterfly collector. I wasn't a scientist yet. And that's the first paper he asked me to read, um, you know, as a freshman in, in college. And like my head exploded. I thought, oh, my God, like now I now I can look at the collection at the Peabody and, and understand the patterns in it, you know, and, and how Charles had actually that collection wasn't random. That collection was all about, you know, biogeography, all about coevolution, all about chemical defense, all about, you know, islands and local adaptation. So I think it, as an organizer of thoughts, you know, the, the next step, of course, is you can say, well, it's not just about butterflies or plants. You don't have to care if you're a marine biologist. Yeah, sort of generalizing. Yeah. The yeah. It's, a, gen- it's yeah. a very general thing. Yeah. yeah, that paper was one that really sticks out to me from my my graduate school. We were required as graduate students to take the the foundational papers, a series of three in behavior, evolution, and ecology. And this one was obviously in the in the evolutionary section of the fifty in that class. I could probably name ten of them, and, but. The Ehrlich and Raven is one that really stands out prominently, and really, I've never done research in that area at all, so it just has a had, had a strong impact. Um, so, Rob, we want to sort of continue to talk about coevolution, and then maybe get a little bit into the nuts and bolts in route to the the research that you've been doing uh, in the recent past. But can I take a, a brief diversion here? in light of what we've been discussing, and ask if we know anything, we juxtapose natural selection and coevolution, or evolution by natural selection and coevolution. Do we know anything about the players in coevolutionary relationships such that the traits of those, you know, uh, that duo, or we'll get into more complicated organizations later, is there anything about the traits of them that dispose higher rates of diversification or just rates of evolution in general. And you, you mentioned a minute ago, um, or you alluded to the Red Queen hypothesis, right? And so that's classic from Lewis Carroll, running as fast as you can to stay in the same place. And that's usually invoked for the arms races. And in particular, my world, it's a disease ecology type of argument. But is there anything like the body size disparities between two players in a relationship or the ecologies or the evolutionary histories that influence subsequent diversification or any of the outcomes of coevolution? Yeah, there's, you know, and I'm, I'm not expert at this, but I, th- I think that, you know, my, my colleagues in, um, you know, in microbial symbiosis, you know, people like Angela Douglas and Teresa Pavlovska um, here at Cornell, who I teach with and who I know well, um, you know, they have been driving a lot of that concept structure and, in, 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 you know, especially working in microbial uh, symbiotic relationships as they both do. Um, you know, where we get into the red king as well as the red queen, right? This, this idea that if you're in a really tightly co-adapted mutualistic relationship, maybe you don't, you know, you know, maybe maybe the, the the pressures are not to evolve really quickly, right? But to but to but to just track each other and, and make sure that the, the checks and balances are working, but don't go off the planet in terms of the co-adapted, you know, gene clusters. Um, whereas if you have an antagonistic, you know, relationship, you are red queening, right? You're you're chasing each other, you know. Uh, I think the famous example is, you know, Kurt Lively's, you know, from Indiana's work on parasites, you know, driving the evolution of sexual reproduction, you know, in snails uh, in, in New Zealand. This is one of the examples that we teach, right, that in 
uh, and this is getting toward the geographic mosaic idea, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> stealth, stealth uh, suggestion there. Um, no, no problem. That's where we were going. So you're doing well. <laughs> we're on the path. We're on the path. Yeah. So, so right in, in, in places where parasitism rates are high by trematode worms or whatever, the poor snails, like there's no snail on the planet that's, you know, that's free of a, of a parasite, I guess. But, um, you know, when, when the parasitism rates are really high, uh, like there's a really strong selective pressure on, on, on recombination, right? On sex. You, you, you've got to like increase the rate of, of, of counter, you know, of counter adaptation to, to, to these guys that are like neutering you and, 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 and killing you or getting you eaten by, by birds so that they can repeat, you know, complete their life cycles. Uh, and in places where that's lower, uh, where those selective pressures are lower, there are advantages to, you know, to not having sexual reproduction. Um, and that, that's like, like deep in the foundations of, you know, behavioral ecology and, and evolutionary theory of like the advantages and disadvantages of sex. Um, so I think coevolution has a direct input on like that discussion at that conversation as well. And maybe, maybe that makes it more interesting in the sense that it's not just like if, if plant pollinator or plant herbivore evolution isn't your thing, um, coevolution is still like hyper relevant to all these other aspects, you know, of uh, epidemiology, for example, we, you know, we're just yeah. completing, oh, yeah. <laughs> completing the banner year for epidemiology and coevolution is all about that. So just, just for our listeners, we, we've thrown around this metaphor of the Red Queen a couple of times. Can you, can you just unpack that for a sec? Oh, oh right. So, 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 so there's a quote from Lewis Carroll's book uh, that, you know, uh, you know, here in our world, uh, you have to run as fast as you can to stay in the same place, right? And, and so, you know, Lee Van Valen popularized this idea that, that um, you know, those selective pressures are so ferocious that, uh, you know, you might not see the net result as, as, as change in phenotype, what you might see is, is, you know, the lack of extinction, you know, or the lack of destruction because the, the, the counter adaptation and adaptation, you know, selective pressures are so intense. Yeah. So both parties are evolving so fast just to stay where they are in that relationship. Yeah. Well, let's, um, want to unpack one more point that we've thrown around a little bit. And, and that's this distinction between, uh, one-to-one coevolution and diffuse coevolution. And, and just for me personally, you know, I think maybe for many people, it's easy to imagine one-to-one coevolution. You know, one lineage evolves a, some some novel variation of a trait; uh, the other lineage responds. But there's also this sort of concept of diffuse coevolution, which involves you know multiple lineages in a community interacting and influencing each other's evolution. So, so how do you how do you bridge that gap from thinking mechanistically about one-to-one to diffuse? I, I'd say the the two-word answer would be community ecology. Um, but 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 let me go back to Darwin and Wallace, and this is a bridge to night blooming flowers, which is what I do. Uh, so every textbook on, on evolution has Lutz Wasserthal's beautiful photo of um, Xanthopan and Morgani with his you know twenty two centimeter tongue, uh, hawk giant hawk moth in Madagascar visiting you know Darwin's star orchid and Greekum sesquipedale, and so this was the you know the the, the flagship example of. Uh, you know, tight coevolution uh, in a pollination scenario, right? That Darwin posited that there would be select, you know, directional selection on the flower to have a longer spur, so that the moth would press its body into the flower and increase the probability of, of transferring a, a pollen package, right, a pollinium. Um, but uh, but but then, like the longer the you know, the, but if the moth was depending on that flower for nectar, 
because you know, as, as Art and I know in excruciating detail, you know, the 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 energetic demands on hawk moths are like they're Olympic athletes, right? They're burning fuel at unbelievable rates uh, to, to to be hovering in flight at from two to two. Yeah. Homeotherms, forty degree thorax. Uh, yeah. Unbelievable, right? So so they need high octane fuels, and they get them from flower nectar. Uh, so there alone, right, like there's a prediction for like what's the optimum fuel for these guys, and you could get into a dissertation on that. But um, what, you know, what's fascinating is, uh, you know, if you go to Madagascar, first of all, those orchids are not very abundant. And even before deforestation, they weren't very abundant. And second of all, they don't bloom for very long. You know, so in terms of supporting a population of hawk moth adults, for, you know, in terms of grams of sugar or, or joules of calories, like they're insufficient, okay? So that doesn't make sense as a tight coevolutionary relationship. What makes more sense is that those orchids are part of a guild of night-blooming flowers that provide hawk moths across biomes in, because hawk moths are, are really fragile. They can fly across islands. They can fly across bodies of water. They're not limited to one forest in most cases. Um, and they need fuel every night. They, they, they're not territorial. They don't come back to where they were born. You know, so they need to find food, and they're very good at doing it. Um, but it ends up that if you ask them where they go for food, what they really like is a baobab tree, you know, where the whole, the whole canopy is in bloom with these giant you know, puffballs of flowers full of grams of nectar, and they don't have to... They don't have to work hard for it, huh? No! <laughs> they, can, they can fill their nectar crops, you know, a half an ml of sugar... And then get on with what they want to do, which is find mates and lay eggs. So, so you know, the pollinator shift idea is that a Darwin star orchid may be, you know, tapping into a platonic ideal, you know, some kind of sensory bias of what hawk moths really love. You know, you know, Jeff Riffle did a really nice experiment in Arizona where he asked, you know, if, if, if Manduca sexta, our moth, the tobacco hornworm, you know, it visits agave flowers in the in the desert. We know this because it's covered with agave pollen when we catch the moths. But it has this really great relationship with datura flowers because it lays eggs on them as a host and it also drinks sugar and pollinates them whenever you look at them. You know, and so what Jeff and, and his colleagues found at the University of Arizona is they have an innate preference for datura. And so if you give a naive moth the choice between datura and agave, it'll almost always choose datura. But once it's learned agave, it'll go to agave flowers because it's learned, hey, this is, you know, this is a Pavlovian situation. This works. <laughs> but, but in some ways, that, that doesn't explain why they evolve such long proboscides, right? Long tongues. Because if they can get their food from other superabundant sources, then it seems like there'd be very little selection pressure necessarily to, to exploit these sort of rarer but but preferred sources. So what explains that? So, yeah, so, so, so that's the, the virtue of, of alternative hypotheses. You know, sometimes you gotta break, break, break out of the textbook, right? So, so 1997, um, there was this paper by a guy from Minnesota named Bill Miller in the Journal of Lepidopter Society. Uh, I don't know how many people read it, but I, it blew me away because Bill basically said, here's an alternative view. Uh, not all hawk moths visit flowers, uh, in fact, a large, a large number of them never don't even feed as adults. And what's interesting is the ones that don't feed as adults and have like vestigial mouth parts tend to feed on trees as larvae, as caterpillars. And, and they pupate beneath the tree and the tree is always there. You know, when, it, when that pupa emerges, whether it's the next year or the following year, the tree, the ash tree is going to be above it, 
right? So it doesn't basically it doesn't even have to fly, right? It just gets out of the pupa, goes up. You know, if it's a female, it puts out its pheromone. Males find them, they mate, life cycle complete, right? Whereas the species that have long tongues tend to feed on herbaceous plants, and the and the interesting thing about herbaceous plants is that they're variable in space and time, right? That that's that's Paul Feeney's idea of of, of apparency, right? So if if you're a manduka moth. And you and you eat a datura plant or a tomato plant or whatever as a larva, and you come out as a in front of your pupa the next year as an adult. Maybe it's not there, you know. Maybe you have to fly a kilometer to find the next plant. And so Bill Miller's idea, which is brilliant, I thought, is that give, having long tongues means that you can get food from you can get nectar from basically any flower. I got it. So it's kind of like a bed hedging sort of thing. It, it allows you to to feed out on the extremes if only the extremes are available. Yeah. Awesome. This this idea about diffuse coevolution is is so interesting because it it forces you to confront the the sort of scales of time that are, are always so important in biology. Um, and I, I think we're sort of dancing around the other dimension of complexity that that you you mentioned just briefly a minute ago, Rob is this sort of classic geographic mosaic theory of coevolution. So it's not just that you have many different players in the system and responses between them. You also have different populations, right, of any, any one of those players. And so you sort of have this spatial and temporal complexity in how the relationships can go together. So what do, what do we know about that? I mean, e- either in the case of, of hawk moths and, and Datura or, you know, other classic examples of the, the role of population structure in influencing the outcomes of coevolution. Yeah, thank you. I, I think that was, that's probably the biggest aha moment of my own career. Um, that I won't say that I was blithely ignorant of John Thompson's work because uh, I read I had read his books as a grad student and as a postdoc, but I hadn't really experienced it. Um, the first grant I got with Lucinda McDade. Um, in Arizona was to look at species level diffuse coevolution traits. Like we were interested in the guild of night blooming plants. So think of them as moonflowers or jasmines, like everywhere in the world, uh, you know, whatever it is, 30, 40 families of plants have evolved a kind of jasmine, a, a flower that blooms at night. It's perfumed, you know, it's, it's chalice shaped, it's long tubed, long spurred, you know, like Darwin's orchid or like Datura. And so we had focused on evening primroses, four o'clocks and tobaccos, which are not only three different families, but they're three different orders. You know, so they like really convergent evolution, like different morphological ways to make a nectar tube, uh, different ways to make a, a flower, essentially, you know, in terms of which, which, which of the four organs that make flowers, you know, was kind of accentuated into the, the, white, cha- the white chalice. Um, and they're all perfumed. Uh, so I launched off on my, on my first field trip to collect data for evening primroses. That was one of our focal groups. We were very much thinking on the species level. We had phylogenies that we were working out and we were gonna look at like, how do you gain and lose these traits when you switch between hawk moth pollination and say bee pollination? You know, do you lose fragrance? Do you, you know, when you go from night blooming to day blooming, you know, what are the, what are the, 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 you know, checks and balances? Um, And and, uh, on my magical mystery tour, I, I drove up from Tucson to Boise uh, and back. It was 1998. I was in Salt Lake City for the, the Jazz Bulls finals. It was a great time. 
Oh, um, fantastic, man! I would have given a lot to see that. <laughs> oh, I was it was a morgue, man. It was a horrible day for Salt Lake City at Game Six. Um, <laughs> I'm so a Mar- Bills fan. Mar- I was. I would have been very happy. I'd probably <laughs> no, got a lot of trouble. No, Sorry. All right. Conversation I, over. Nice okay, talking no to you, Rob. Sports. No more yeah. sports. <laughs> I love Carl Malone. Um, and anyway, uh, I, I was everywhere along the way. I was stopping and collecting evening primroses, and they all smelled the same species, Enothera suspitosa, and they all smelled different, and their flower dimensions were different. I could, I could, I could see this on the roadside. And at one point, you know, from Idaho, I called Lucinda and I said, we're in trouble. These are not species traits. These are population traits. And I got back to, to Arizona and, and Lucinda and uh, Judy Bronstein said, you know, let's take a closer look at, at John Thompson's work. Um, and, you know, so years later, I met John. I did a sabbatical with John in, in 2014. We had a 10-year, you know, uh, collaboration on his plants, which I, I can talk about later. Um, but, but it was an epiphany for me. So here's the idea in a nutshell, right? That um, you have these tight relationships that we've been talking about. So in John's case, uh, he studied um, saxifrage plants, right? So plants in the, in the genus Lithophragma, little woodland stars, they're very inconspicuous little flowers, um, which are unusually smelly for how small they are, okay? Uh, and they smell good, mostly. Um, and they're pollinated by a quasi-yucca moth. They're pollinated by this little moth named Grea that uh, either oviposits into the flower with its abdomen and pollinates it by, by its butt, or uh, you know, drinks, drinks the nectar and then you know, oviposits into the ovaries from the outside. There are two species of Grea. Um, and you know, what John basically discovered over several years of really careful work with his students in the Northwest, Idaho, Montana, Eastern Washington, was that in different populations, the relationships looked different. But in some places, Grea's only host plant was Lithophragma, and Lithophragma's only pollinator was Grea. So they were stuck with each other, and the reciprocal selective pressures there would be very strong. Um, but in other populations, there were like Eucara plants growing in the same family, and those were an alternate host, you know, for, for Grea moths. And so, you know, Lithophragma was off the hook a little bit, right? Because they may not get all of that uh, negative attention from, from Grea, or other populations where um, there were bombyliid flies and, and drenid bees, which are legitimate pollinators for small flowers, but they don't carry the weight of, 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 of destroying the, the fruits or the seeds, right? So in those places, you can imagine like, that the selective pressures would be really different. And the, reason, and, and the fact that that was, what made that so interesting was that it was a scale of kilometers you know, that, 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 that these different kinds of populations were not far apart from each other, hence the mosaic. Now, now here's where, the, for me, this becomes really interesting. Again, you know, devil's advocate, I don't care about flowers and pollinators. I'm really interested in something else. Okay, so Craig Bankman, at the same time, is doing this gorgeous work on pine cones and their relationships of different kinds of pine trees across the Intermountain West and crossbill birds who are specialized on you know, they've got this special tool, their, 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 their bills, right? So they, they pry open pine cones and they pull out the seeds and eat them. You know, and they cache some of them. And, and so there's seed dispersal agents and seed predators. Um, so in places where, again, a hotspot, right? Places where the pine, the pine species and the crossbill are the only two interacting species, they're, they're going to be very strong reciprocal selective pressures on those guys. Um, but in places where there's red squirrels, Red squirrels have a different way of attacking pine cones, 
and then the tree and then the trees are, de are dealing with those other selective pressures. So, um, you know, and the third example I mentioned before, you know, the Brody's long-term study on garter snakes and, and newts that have tetrodotoxin, you know, and, that, and there's clinal variation across the American West in terms of how strong the toxins are, how resistant, you know, the, the garter snakes are to those toxins or how able they are to sequester them and use them for their own defense, et cetera. So imagine you're in the same forest in Idaho, you know, or in Washington or Oregon, and you've got those three systems happening at the same time. You know, that geographic, geographic mosaics are everywhere, okay? And so that for me was the, oh, wow, it's like, oh, these are just beautiful model systems with really you know, excellent scientists who promoted them and developed them. But, 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 but it's broader than that, right? We need to be thinking about other, you know, other examples. These are not, I think the problem with yuccas, you know, which I have worked on with the lapel mirror and, 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 and um, you know, Glenn Svensson, my first postdoc, and my friends from Syracuse, you know, Carrie Segraves and Dave Althoff, uh, in people's mind, they're too specialized, right? They're like, oh, yeah, that's great but they're off on their own, like figs and fig wasps. You know, they didn't, they're a module in the network. They, you know, they don't interact with everybody else, even, even though they do. Um, but I think, you know, when you broaden your, you know, commu when you include community ecology, when you look at um, geographic differences in microhabitat, you start to create this picture of, oh, it's everywhere. Um, and I think the importance to evolutionary theory of geographic mosaics is that it takes microevolution but it provides a bridge to macroevolution. Like, here's how microevolution happening locally can actually diversify things that we would count as different species eventually. You know, and, and one of the big, you know, uh, criticisms of evolution is, okay, fine, you know, you can have allele frequency changes here and there, and you, you can even happen in real time in the Galapagos or whatever, but, you know, that doesn't make species A into species B. So, so if I could just click, connect those dots, so if you've got a mosaic where you have sort of slight co-evolved differences among a series of populations, you could think of those as like a bunch of little evolutionary experiments within a species, and, you know, sometimes one of those populations is going to expand out and and replace all the rest, right? And so that that's the connection between the microevolutionary part and sort of more macroevolutionary diversification, right? That's that's right. Yeah. That's right. Well, I, I want to turn now, since we're we're moving on in time, I want to talk about a specific paper of yours, uh, this this recent uh, 2020 paper in Plants, People, and Planet, which. Um, I think blew me and Marty away. Really loved it, um, and I I read actually what I think is one of my favorite sentences that I've ever read in a scientific paper, and I'm just going to quote it here. "Quote: I outlined two examples of diffuse coevolution between plants and nocturnal pollinators, hawk moths and bats, to examine their impact on human aesthetic ideals, revealing unexpected links between perfume, tequila, and the art of Georgia O'Keeffe." <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so um, I'll just say, so So very broadly, this paper is about um, the relationship between what we've been talking about so far, coevolution, and ecosystem services. And and so let's just draw that link here for the, the last part of the podcast and maybe start just by telling us what are ecosystem services, and then we can connect that back to, to coevolution. Uh, honestly, I think it goes back to Ehrlich and Raven. Um, <laughs> um, in, in a different way, though, and I, and, I, and I emphasize this because we all have these formative experiences in our education. Um, 
So when you and I were at Stanford, um, it, Peter Raven came and gave this amazing talk to like all of Stanford about um, essentially about ecosystem services, about you know what humans have to benefit from protecting biodiversity. Um, you know, and we had a colleague at the time who was a student, you know, uh, um, Gretchen Daly, you know, who was doing her thesis with with Paul Ehrlich, and Gretchen worked very hard to try to define, you know, what are the, how do humans derive value from biodiversity, from ecosystem services? And she, you know, she edited a wonderful book about that a couple of years later, and it just stuck in my mind for many years. It's not what I did, you know, for my own career. But, but those are things that I, I was interested in conservation. I, biodiversity is obviously a, a subject that really motivates me. Um, and, and what it comes down to in a nutshell is um, the natural complexity of the planet, the ta- you know, Darwin's tangled bank, um, you know, in a way that's outlined actually quite beautifully in Genesis, uh, creates the Goldilocks zone, right? It creates a habitable planet for humans um, in ways that are almost too numerous to count. You know, food security, climate control, pest control, natural products that provide us with drugs, medicines, perfumes, fibers, dyes, pigments, uh, you know, building materials, um, genetic resources, things that we don't even, we haven't even fully tapped into yet that can help us solve the emerging problems of the Anthropocene. Um, Recreation and inspiration, art, uh, escape from the the stresses of our urban lives or or whatever of our daily stresses. all of these things, again, it's like coevolution, you know, like what's not an ecosystem service uh, is, is a relevant question. But to me, that conversation, which kind of started with the 1988 book on diversity, on biodiversity that was edited by E.O. Wilson, um, you know, it took me in a, in a direction that I, that was very relevant to my teaching. You know, I think there, there are two examples that everybody uses that are so wonderful. You know, one is the discovery of penicillin. Um, you know, which is a game changer in human history, but it wasn't like for humans, right? It's about, co- you know, co-evolution and escalating arms races between microbes um, and, or, uh, or TAC polymerase. Okay, so, you know, late 80s, you know, I'm at Stanford, ready to go to grad school at Michigan, and I'm doing interviews in grad school. And, you know, Ken Seitzma at Wisconsin says to me, well, there's this new discovery called polymerase chain reaction that's going to change the way we all do things. And you I'm said, nah, uh, come on. <laughs> polymerase no, chain no, no, reaction? No. no way. No, but, but uh, TAC polymerase, for people listening out there who don't know, Thermus aquaticus is this microbe that lives in hot springs, you know, in Yellowstone. Um, and so uh, because the, the water temperatures are so hot, um, when it does um, DNA replication, uh, it, it, it can't have the normal you know, DNA polymerase molecule uh, enzyme, right? Because it would melt at 80 degrees centigrade or whatever those temperatures are. Whereas TAC polymerase, which is named after Thermus aquaticus, you know, is thermally stable, you know, under very, very strong and probably quite ancient selective pressure to not melt at those temperatures. And so Mullis's insight was, oh, um, I can amplify any DNA sequence by putting TAC polymerase in a test tube with those sequences and with the nucleotides themselves and then thermally cycle up to up to 80 down to 50 or whatever it is. I, I don't remember what the temperature. So, so if I could just uh, maybe summarize your argument about the, this connection between coevolution and ecosystem services. So I think, I think what you're saying is that 
coevolution results in extreme diversification within biological systems, and that the end, end points of those coevolutionary processes produce things, you know, compounds or processes that are of benefit to us, right? And so, so we're, we're in a sense, we're, we're the beneficiaries of all this incredible biological diversification. You, you're, and that's opposed to as saying that coevolution necessarily results in, in things that are, are good for us, right? It's more that, that we're benefiting from the total diversity and we can sort of pick and choose among, uh, among the things that we like and that are good for us, right? That's, that's right. Let me, let me give you an example from, from kind of arms race, you know, plant herbivore uh, uh, coevolution, and then we'll come back to the Georgia yeah, O'Keeffe yeah, um, comment. Okay. And the tequila comment. Yeah, let's not forget tequila. We've got to talk tequila. <laughs> never forget. No, never forget the tequila. Uh, well, all of, actually, all of this has, to do, has a lot to do with Mexico. Uh, I have had a lifelong love affair with Mexico. I, I went when I was 20. I was a beneficiary of a broader impact, you know, NSF grant to um, Carol Horvitz and Doug Chemsky, and they brought me to Veracruz, and I and I blew my I was 20 years old and it blew my mind, and I learned I learned Spanish and it changed my life, and so um, you know my colleague Judith Becerra, who's who is Mexican and who works at the University of Arizona, has in her career she studied these wonderful plants, um, you know these these trees uh, in the Bursera family that are like hyper diverse in Mexico. Um, and as, as, as a lot of people know, they have these resins that are under pressure. They're like squirt guns, you know? So if a, if a, if a beetle snips a leaf, it gets squirted in the face with this latex and resin, and it's, which is full of monoterpenes. So, you know, she's done these gorgeous studies to, to sort of show like the tit for tat coevolution and the geographic mosaic parts and the, and the ecological fitting of different communities that can have one, two to five species of, you know, of bursera trees in the same place. And they have this escalating arms races with different species of, um, of, of flea beetles, of chrysomelid beetles. And so where that becomes interesting in human history is that that family, the Berseraceae in Mesoamerica, the genus Bursera and the genus Proteum, they're the source of copal. So if you read about the Maya, you know, copal is their incense, okay? It's their connection to the spirit world. And there was a whole trade route, there's a whole economy based on cacao seeds and copal and quetzal feathers that was moved across Mesoamerica, out of the rainforest, into the Valley of Mexico, up toward the border with the you know, with present United States, et cetera. And so the pre pre-Columbian Mesoamerica had this whole not only economy, but also the the sort of their spiritual, you know, worldview, which was sort of linked to copal. And, that, and if that were limited to Mexico, that would be fascinating in itself. But the, the, the killer for me is across the planet, okay, what's the close, you know, what are the relatives of Bursera and Proteum? They're, um, you know, they're, they're Camifora and Boswellia, okay? These are genera of very species-rich genera of trees in Africa and the Middle East. And guess what they make? They make frankincense and myrrh, okay? So we go back to the Bible, right, and say, like, here's, a, you know, the queen of Sheba's whole existence, right? Her, her economy, her relationship with, with King Solomon, like, all of that Horn of Africa flow of people and money and commerce was about frankincense and myrrh because those trees grow in the Horn of Africa and in Yemen. Um, 
And they're fighting the same family of beetles and they're producing really similar resins. And so here's where like in one species, it would be cool. But when you have a hundred of them and, and, all, and that represents this arms race and they escape and radiate, then people can take advantage of that. And, you know, fr frankincense and, and myrrh, like just pick your culture, right? Like the Greeks wouldn't go into battle with the Persians without myrrh in their pocket because it was a way of, you know, of preventing sepsis in their wounds, right? Uh, you know, the, um, the Catholic Church buys up most of the frankincense that they can because it's so important to their rituals in, you know, in the Vatican. Uh, and it, go, it goes back thousands of years. And so from a, if you were just taking a Paul Feeney, you know, point of view of like insects, plants, chemistry, the Bursaraceae is magnificent. But look at how it affected humanity. And, and that's like, I'm, I'm cherry picking a nice example, but you can go on and on and on. Um, you know, when I wrote that sentence, you, you could have asked me, well, what was I smoking, right? But, <laughs> but, 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 but some potential answers, <laughs> but, but, but the, but the Solanaceae, right? The, um, you know, the, the night, the nightshade family is all about that. Yeah. Astonishing chemical factories. Yeah. Driven by, you know, the coevolution with their enemies, you know, whether it's tropane alkaloids or whether it's nicotine or, or whatever. And so like, I, I just find that so inspiring, um, Peter Raven, to give him credit, invited me to this uh, symposium. Why did I write this paper? Peter, Peter invited me to the symposium on plants at the National Geographic uh, a year ago. And his point of view was, we're plant blind. Plant blindness is a huge problem, even among scientists. And the National Geographic was only funding a small percentage of, of proposals to, to botanists. And so Peter brought together all these different kinds of experts on botany and, and plants um, to, to, for the symposium to basically promote to the National Geographic, here are the sundry and various ways that plants are important. Um, so uh, again, Peter, you know, is this huge inspiration for me. And then they asked us to write these papers, and I was challenged, especially in that audience, you know, to bring together as many examples as I could. Yeah, um, it almost seems like you know, ecosystem services is a misnomer for the magnitude of what these are to have such profound through such a long period of human evolutionary history to have the impacts that these outcomes of coevolution are. Rob, you should come up with a new a new term for this because we know biology always needs more more oh, words. Oh no. Oh no. <laughs> but it, you know, ecosystem services sort of bends it within a, a relatively small window of time and this has this legacy impact that I mean it's you know, you just briefly rattled off five or six different examples, but easily this could be books, right? Well, I think I think that's the point, right? Thank you for that bridge. That that that, that it's not just it's not just about the air we breathe and the food we eat, and you know, like that gets into a certain realm of of conversations with the, with with economists, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, there's also the issue of inspiration. You know, where does where does where does your where do your stories come from? Where does your culture come from? Where does your religion come from? You know, you can't none of these things happen without natural products and without the, 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 the flow of people and ideas and commerce that were driven by these goods. I mean, cultures would be pretty grim um, with, without, without, the, without the wonders <laughs> of the natural world, even the ones that are borrowed. You know, we just had um, the, the, the Feast of Santa Lucia in Sweden, which is really important, bigger than Christmas, I think, for a lot of Swedes. Um, and one of the things that, that Swedes do to celebrate Lucia is, is they make these saffron buns. But that's amazing, right? Because saffron doesn't grow in Sweden, right? <laughs> saffron, saff, 
You don't think Sweden for sure. No, no, but 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 that leads us to a to a biological puzzle. What is saffron? Why is saff- saffron is extremely expensive? Um, you know, it's grown in Iran and it's grown in Spain and Morocco, not that many other places. And what is it? It's a crocus. Uh, and saffron comes from what? It comes from the female organ of a flower. It has to be plucked, you know, by hand, which is why it's so damn expensive. But 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 the saffron owls, right? Those compounds, they're they're sawed up, they're they're the decapitated, literally, the, the head part of a beta carotene molecule or these pigment molecules, carotenoids. So what are they doing? You know, are they protecting the plant? Are they signal molecules? Do they are they antimicrobial? You know, do they assist in pollen tube generation? We don't even know. Like it's the same with vanillin. You know, orchids are not famous for fruit. Most orchid fruits are dry capsules with millions of little tiny, you know, dust-like seeds. So we don't know why we have vanilla, biologically speaking. We don't know why we have vanilla. That's no. nuts. Uh, but the world Listeners is... out there, you must get on this. <laughs> oh, I mean, here's, what it, here's one of my messages. Like, like we're never going to run out of questions for, for students out there across the planet. You know, I know your global reach of your, of your podcast um, listening to us. Uh, like, there's, don't, don't despair. There's plenty of great questions out there that we have no no clue of what the answers are. Um, but I think you know, bringing it back to the Georgia O'Keeffe and the tequila part, um, here's why like night blooming plants, which I love, are, are so amazing. You know, we appear to have similar tastes in terms of our olfactory, sensory, you know, uh, proclivities to, to hawk moths. Flowers that are pollinated by hawk moths are our favorite perfumes. You know, jasmine and gardenia and, and jonquils and things. So they're sweet and pleasant to us. Poly, you know, flowers pollinated by dung flies and, and carrion flies, obviously. <laughs> obviously, don't, don't. There's a big market for those perfumes. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, so the fact that the flowers have to produce a lot of scent to attract moths from a distance is part of their diffuse coevolution, right? Because they're going to attract moths to, to, to in, in cases of... Like Darwin's orchid is an epiphyte. You don't find fields of Darwin's orchid. You find individual plants. So they have to have strong scent to bring moths across a distance to find them. Moths are nearsighted, and so they can't just see those flowers from a kilometer away, but they can smell them from hundreds of meters away. Um, so, so, so for the perfume part, for the Georgia O'Keeffe part, you know what we derive as beautiful, these large moonflowers that are very sexy, right? They're very sensual, and they smell great. They inspire us. That's an artifact of what it is to inspire a hawk moth, okay, and to attract a hawk moth over distance, whether it's in a rainforest or a desert. So, so th- this is super interesting to me. So, so do you think that uh, it's just chance that that outcome of that coevolutionary interaction is so attractive to us, or are you claiming that there's some kind of like cultural or actual human evolution in response to these really important plants that make them so attractive to us? Um, that's a good question. Does that question even make sense? It, it, it does, but especially in the context of um, domestication. Okay, so, so one of the really interesting things to do is to ask, what happens to Easter lilies and gardenias and jasmines in the last 2,000 years, you know, or the last three, 200 years, you know, in human domestic? So we like those plants, obviously, and there's no church altar on Easter that's bereft of, you know, 20 or 30 pots of, of Easter lilies, right? Um, and different cultures around the world, you know, in, in the, if you read the, um, the, the, the Thousand and One Nights, for example, you know, in Damascus um, was full of gardens, 
ancient Damascus was full of gardens of jasmine and citrus. You know, so people have been growing those plants for their fragrances for a long time. Um, as I mentioned in the article, you know, uh, the Sun King in, in France grew tuberose from Mexico all, you know, in Versailles because it smelled great. Um, so the question is, like, if, if you remove things from natural selection and put them in artificial selection, do they shift? You know, does, does the fragrance become more sweet and less and less funky? Um, are there things that, as we've learned from you know, Ian Baldwin's group's beautiful work on, on wild tobaccos, are there parts of those fragrance components that are actually defensive and not attractive, that like flowers don't just attract pollinators, they also attract enemies. And so maybe the full bouquet of fragrance includes things that are, you know, off-putting to uh, wood crickets and to, you know, opportunistic flower visitors that, you know, rob nectar rather than the, the pollinators that they're kind of targeting. Um, so I, I think that's one answer to your question. Um, the tequila part, which we, we really have to get to, is this. <laughs> we got to get um, to it. Let's, let's go there now. So, so this, this comes from one of my colleagues, Luis Aguiarte from UNAM in Mexico, and, and his, his team, a wonderful team of, of, of scientists that have worked with him and his wife for many, many years um, on agaves and on bats. And their idea is that bats and agaves have been engaged in an arms race of a different kind. Um, that bats are, you know, much larger than most other pollinating animals except for birds, and their energetic demands are also very high. So they need a lot of sugar. They need a lot of nectar. Um, and so smaller flowers with small nectar, you know, rewards, like, like even like hawk moth flowers, which are compared to bee flowers, like very rich in nectar, are not sufficient to feed bats. Bats often fly up to 100 miles in a night from their cave to find flowers, which is outrageous to think of, but we, we know this is true now from studies where people have put radio tags on bats and followed them from their caves. Um, so the arms race idea is that for bats to show flower constancy, um, you know, you have, you have to make it worth their while. You have to have these like mass blooming cacti, columnar cacti or, or agaves um, that, that, that offer like liters of nectar in aggregate um, to satisfy these bats, because you don't get one bat, right? You have a whole cave full of bats, and they move, and they, mi and they migrate. Um, and so the idea is that, is that competing for bats drove agaves to this kind of, you know, almost suicidal production of, 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 of giant candelabras of flowers. And, and because they're desert plants, right, um, and they're cam plants, they can only do photosynthesis, they can only, like, fix carbon at night. They can't grow very fast. They're limited by their form of photosynthesis and by the severity of the climate in which they live. You know, so basically they've they've been driven to be like salmon, where they can only afford one explosive reproductive, you know, bout and then they die. You know, it, it's like a Norse mythology, right? Like they they, they die <laughs> in this burning boat. You know, they go out with this they go out with this huge bang, um, and so. Tequila is not made from agave flowers. It's made from the, the, the sugar reserves in the rosette, in the plant, in the vegetative part of the plant. But the idea is in order to make the asparagus, you know, the giant you know, 25 to 35 foot tall flowering panicle that agaves make, you have to marshal incredible amounts of stored photosynthate. And what 
Mesoamericans discovered is if you harvest before they bloom, if you harvest a large agave plant, cut off the thorny part, and you're left with this big artichoke, and then you squeeze it, that's what becomes mezcal and tequila once you ferment it. It's this incredible source of sugar and carbohydrate. And, you know, if you travel in Latin America, all along South America and Central America, you know, there's always a place where somebody's doing a chicha, right? A chicha is a fermented starch. So whether it's, whether it's potato or whether it's corn-based or whether it's cassava-based, you know, you have the starch source and people chew it and the amylases in their saliva, you know, digest the or metabolize the starch into sugars and then you can ferment the sugars and then it becomes a spirit and then that becomes your bridge to the spirit world right and and so to you know tequila and mezcal you know obviously served that purpose long before the arrival of the spanish conquistadors and today it's a huge not only is it like one of those things that north americans think of when they think of mexico but also for the mexican economy it's really important and so so what, what Luis Ayarte and his colleagues have written is, are these beautiful papers saying, hey, you know what? Um, bats are in trouble. Uh, they are a traveling feast, right? They migrate. They're not always in places where they can be protected. They're very sensitive to pathogens and to uh, industrial pollution and, and to predation and so forth. Um, and, uh, and so why don't, why don't if, if, if you're, if you're an, a tequila farmer, if you if you have fields and fields and fields of agave, um, and you don't want them to bloom, right? Because what you want to do is you harvest you want to harvest the pulque from from the from the rosette. Let a, let a couple of them bloom every year, you know. Promote the bats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So grow an extra border row and let those guys bloom. And it's a long term thing. It's not going to happen next year, right? It's going to take thirty years to let these things. But 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 give migrating bats a chance. Where if, you know, if, if you have, you know, every time, you know, the, if you scale up industrially your pulqueria, at least could you have a border of plants that you let bloom so that the bats coming through won't starve. Hmm. So is that suggestion getting any traction? I, I you know, I don't know. I, 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 I just read the paper before, you know, giving my presentation. I was at a conference last fall in Mexico, um, in Querétaro, which had a, a wonderful Symposium on the Anthropocene. You know what are the what are the threats to biodiversity and to ecology in Mexico and in the Americas, you know, in a larger scale, that having to do with human activities, uh, the mo- you know monarch migrations, the wall, all of that stuff. We we had a weirdly similar conversation with Dave Goulson yesterday and uh, talked about uh, how to promote bee and insect diversity, and he was telling us about these. Um, this moves to ask farmers, it was a big experiment that they did, I think in the UK, where they had farmers take out three or 8% of their arable land and sort of convert it back into wild grassland with lots of flowers. And I guess there was initial hit in production of the crops, but then within five years or so, on, on less total land devoted to the crop, they got just as much uh, production as they did before, because there was so much more pollinator diversity and no pollen limitation in the in the crops. That's you know that's that's a problem, and and it's really worth worth discussing broadly because a lot of sustainability, you know, more natural ecologically natural ways of dealing with some of these problems um, take time, and 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 economics doesn't work. You know, it's not it's not very um, hospitable to that. You know, a good example is the push pull. Uh, agricultural system in Kenya, 
okay, that, that Zaire Khan and, and uh, John Pickett have promoted over their careers. You know, it takes four or five years for that intercropping system to start turning a profit, but then it goes, you know, ballistic, right? Because because you're also not you're not only controlling pests, but you're also uh, reducing pesticide use and you're returning nitrogen to the soil without using uh, industrial fertilizer. And so in the in the long it's a long in the long term it's a beautiful thing to do, but for the first three or four years you really have to subsidize those farmers for investing in the method, and that's often a hard sell, uh, you know, for obvious reasons in terms of multinational companies and, and, and so forth. A quick technical note, our high quality recording of Rob failed partway through the interview, so we had to rely on a recording from the Zoom call as a backup. The rest of the audio may sound a bit different. I, I see that as a common problem that uh, sustainable solutions require several years to kick in, uh, but we don't tend to live that way. You know, our politics and our, you know, our global um, uh, challenges tend to, to, to happen on a, on a faster timescale. Yeah, yeah. Well, Rob, this has been fantastic. And um, we want to start wrapping up by talking about your future um, in terms of the, the research that you've got coming down the, the, uh, the road. I mean, with regard to floral sense or coevolution of, of its many forms, what's next for you? So um, I've neglected to mention a wonderful project uh, that we've been working on for about 12 years now. Um, it's, a, it's a big collaboration, but the, the primary collaborator has been um, Chris Escogan from the Chicago Botanic Garden. Um, and um, it, we were funded through the Dimensions of Diversity uh, program at NSF, mm -hmm. which was amazing, you know, five years a couple million dollars, big teams, lots of PIs, uh, a couple of postdocs. Uh, the part I'm going to talk about was driven by Tanya Yogesh, so lead postdoc um, in, uh, in the floral scent part of the, of the project. But we were looking at evening primroses across Western North America, so from a kind of geographic mosaic point of view, but, but scaling up from populations to phylogenies and mm. asking, you know, uh, what are the relationships between floral scent, night blooming, moth pollination, and uh, geographic variation. And what we found, the paper I'm writing literally right now, um, <laughs> is, is uh, this one rare species of, of evening primrose in Colorado called um, Enothera harringtonii. Uh, we know all, the, all of its populations, it's a rare plant. Uh, and, and Colorado, um, you know, the state of Colorado has kept, kept track of this plant because it's, it's an endemic. Um, but it's like a gardenia, you know, it, it literally smells like a gardenia. The, the fragrance is incredible. Uh, and it's in the, it's a short grass prairie plant that comes up to the foothills. It's got a geographic mosaic for, um, for the, the, the scent compound that I studied as a graduate student, linalol. So this is kind of the, the smell of old gray tea, you know, bergamot oil. Um, and you can smell it with your nose, like in certain populations, you'll smell it and you say, oh yeah, that smells like gin. It doesn't smell like you know, Earl gray tea. And that's because the linalol is not there and the gin smell is osamine, which is like one of the beetles' greatest hits of floral scent. Um, so what we discovered over many years, lab studies, field studies, you know, manipulative studies, correlative studies, is that the same pollinators are, and herbivores are, are present everywhere. So it's not a geographic mosaic in terms of the players. Um, but what we find is that further out into the prairie, uh, there's less and less frequency of linalol-bearing plants. They smell, they don't smell like Earl Grey tea. Um, hmm. 
And in those places, um, this little yucca moth-like moth in the genus Mompha, which does not pollinate, it's very small, but it lays eggs into the flower uh, and into the fruit, and, and, and its caterpillars eat seeds in the fruits like yucca moth. So highly destructive to plant fitness. Yeah, <laughs> that they're apparently they're attracted to linalool. Mm. So the populations where linalool is rare, those plants get hammered. You know, there's a very strong selective pressure against linalool. Mm. Populations where linalool is common, the moths appear to be using something else to choose their host. And so that was like, that was amazing to us because this is a, a, a canonical feature of moth pollinated, you know, jasmine-like plants. It's a strong, sweet scent. And the, and the hawk moths, in this case, the white line sphinx, doesn't care. The flowers are scented either way, and adding linalool to the flowers didn't change anything hmm. um, in terms of hawk moth attraction. But, but, but the, the seed predator did care. So in this case, we have a geographic mosaic. It's a really steep climb around Walzenberg, you know, along the interstate, um, at where they go from smelling like jasmines and gardenias to smelling like, you know, gin. Scaling that up across the genus, we see really similar patterns. Um, and that maybe what, what's happening in Enothera is that evolutionary shifts to and away from hawk moth pollination may be about getting away from mompha. You bloom in the day or if you're self-pollinating really or if you lose your scent, maybe it's a way to reduce selective pressure by your enemy. And, and, and that's potentially profound because we don't think of, of plant pollinator evolution, of pollinator shifts from hummingbird, you know, from, from beetle to bee or from hawk moth to bird. We don't always think about those things being driven by enemies. Right. Okay. And so huh. it's um, about attracting the pollinator, not about, you know, right. not attracting like the getting away from the one, you know, one. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you huh. know, Ian, Ian Baldwin and, and Danny Kessler and, and their colleagues showed this, you know, beautifully in a wild tobacco a couple of years ago, it's not a species level shift, but what they found was that when, Manduca caterpillars are eating the plants. One of the induced responses of these tobacco plants is to actually change the timing of their flowers and the scent of their flowers so that they bloom at dawn instead of dusk and that they don't smell the same way. And so that they're, they're kind of shifting to hummingbird pollination as, a, as an herbivore, as a response to herbivory. That was amazing. That's I read, pretty awesome. <laughs> I, I, I read that paper and I reviewed it and I was like, oh, <laughs> don't don't I wish I had done this. This is, this is gorgeous. Um, so I, it it just got us thinking in a broader sense of like, how often does that happen? You know, how often are pollinator shifts a consequence of getting just getting rid of enemies? You yeah. know, yeah. bloom, in, bloom in the day. You know, to get rid of your scent. You know, change your pigment. Um, or you know, not, instead of switching pollinators, switching to a mixed mating system where you can self pollinate in the bud. And if you yeah. have if everything gets eaten, you still can put seeds in the ground. Yeah, right, right, right. right. Uh, that's so cool. Well, thanks so much, Rob. This has been a really great conversation, and uh, just love love talking about this stuff. Yeah, thank you, Rob. Thank, thanks to all of you. This has been a lot of fun. Um, some 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 good fun on a on a dark day, um, but uh, there's always there's always a sunrise and a sunset, and then sunset brings night blooming flowers and hawk moths. So I I've always got something to look forward to. And if everything goes to hell, there's always mezcal. So yeah, there you, go. <laughs> you said that, not me. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Big Biology. 
To support science communication like Big Biology, please make a monthly donation through our Patreon page at patreon.com bigbio. You can also make a one-time contribution at bigbiology.org. Also, if you haven't checked it out yet, we encourage you to join our listener group on Facebook. It's a place where you can discuss the episode with other fans, create memes, and interact with the Big Biology team. We have links to the group in the episode description, or just search Big Biology Listener Group on Facebook. And lastly, if you're looking for even more Big Biology content, check out our playlist on Spotify. We're grouping together episodes by topic and organizing them into themed playlists. Our first playlist is all about evolution. We'll have a link to the playlist in the episode description. We hope you check it out. Please spread the word about Big Biology. Tell a friend about us, share our episodes on your social media feeds, or leave us a review on iTunes. On the next episode, we talk to Eric Jarvis, professor of biology at Rockefeller University, about how we and other species learn to vocalize and use language. So the first thing we've got to get right is the definitions of the behavior and finding a, a biological basis okay, in the brain or the body of a distinction between speech and spoken language or lang speech and language in general. Uh, but if you look in the brain, right, uh, at the human brain and the analogies of those regions with songbirds, you find that the brain regions that we say are active during speech are the same brain regions that are active when we're processing and, or producing uh, language. Thanks to Ruth Demery and Matt Blois for producing the episode. Jordan Greer, Ajinkia Dahake, and Dana Baxter manage our social media channels and help produce the podcast. And as always, Steve Lane manages the website. Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support. Music on the episode is from Pottington Bear.